who planted the church uh, now is one of the elders. Uh, we had planned to ordain four, but uh, Carrie Matheny's daughter, Kiera, about a week before the planned ordination service, began to experience swelling in her face. It grew and grew to the point that those who knew her said they could not, would not have known her if they didn't know who she was. They first thought it was perhaps an abscessed tooth, but then discovered that she had a mass in her chest, and uh, that was restricting the flow of blood and lymphatic fluids, and she was diagnosed with leukemia. And so last weekend, as we were ordaining elders, they were beginning radioactive treatment to try to reduce the mass so they could give her the needed anesthetic in order to do the bone marrow tests, which of course are quite painful. So I ask you to, if you would, to continue to pray for Carrie, his wife Kim, and Kiera. And we'll be going back uh, in a few weeks to ordain Carrie to eldership. It's been my experience over the years that any time you ordain the first group of elders in a church, there's almost an immediate attack of the enemy. And we warn them of that. It's a serious matter to ordain someone to the eldership because you're putting them in a spot where the devil is going to put a bullseye on them. The Tuesday after the Sunday ordination, church had an all-day prayer meeting. Folks who are not even members in the church drove all the way from Lexington about an hour and a half drives, a glorious day of prayer. But that very day, every member of the church received a letter from a man who had been attending for a period of time and then had left the church, lodging all kinds of charges against Tom Zorowski, against the church, just disturbing the saints he was trying to uh, in every way possible. Uh, I said to the brothers, you know, there are individuals who start attending a church and they're like a capsule. And you throw the capsule into the soup and it cooks a while, but the capsule does not dissolve and you can't extract it unchanged. And that was true of this man and his family. He wanted to change the kind of songs, trying to tell the church how to do everything when God had really called this church together and by the Holy Spirit, this group had been assembled through no invitations, through nothing. So we do need to continue to pray for these brothers as they're trying to process this and uh, prayerfully know uh, what steps to take uh, because of that attack. I think it's going to fall to the ground useless and uh, the devil is going to walk away like a dog defeated with his tail between his legs and uh, God will be victorious. But it was a blessed time, tremendous spiritual warfare, but victory given to our Lord. Praise be his name. Well, you know, when you come back from something like that, and you're supposed to preach here the next Sunday, and your mind is still in Kentucky, and you wonder, Lord, uh, what do I do this week? And I mentioned to uh, Bill and Debbie Thursday, I have no idea what I'm supposed to talk about Sunday. And for many years, there are always various themes that have stayed with me 
And I mentioned to Bill Friday, you know the theme about broken cisterns is one that just doesn't seem to want to leave me, but I preached about that in the year 2000. And Bill said, well, it's uh, kind of one of your lifetime messages, talk about it again. And I sense that truly was from the Lord. So this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 16. And I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifices to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to you for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The most satisfying water that I have ever tasted comes from the springs that proliferate the foothills of the Ozarks on the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma. That's where my mother's from. Going back into that area and drinking that delicious spring water, as I say, I've never tasted any water as refreshing in my whole life. Especially delicious when you drink it out of a tin cup or a tin dipper. Going to my grandparents' house, there'd be this pail of water that had been drawn from the spring, and in it there was a tin dipper, And you would take the tin dipper and sip water and then walk outside and not drink it all and swish it and throw it out. That kind of wash it for the next person who wanted to use the dipper. But there was something special about that water, especially from a tin dipper. When traipsing through the woods in my teen years in that area, I would often fill my canteen with water from a spring somewhere in those foothills. And it was just as delicious. Something about the minerals and the metal upon the tongue that was so refreshing. Incidentally, I was fly fishing in northern New Mexico in 1946, and I would fill my canteen from the creek. Didn't taste as good. (laughs) The worst water I've ever tasted in my life was when I was in Barb and the family, we were in a small town ministering in Ohio. Now, this was a, just a marvelous group of people, a little church, a town of 450 people, surrounded by farms. Church was thriving, and they had built a brand new pars- parsonage. It was the best house in town. And they did that, they did that about a year before we moved there. And... They did something special. This house had indoor plumbing, which the other houses in town did not have. And the way they had indoor plumbing was they had built a cistern just outside the back of the house beneath the porch. And so we had indoor plumbing. But I'll tell you, the water from that cistern was the worst water I've ever tasted. It was flat, 
sometimes even had a taste to it I could not stand. And if anybody ever said to me, would you trade a cup of that delicious water from an Ozark spring for a cup of that water from that cistern, I would say, no way. Keep your cistern. Let me have the spring. My mother, talking about her childhood, said one of her tasks each morning was to take the bucket and go down to the spring and get the water for the day. And as a little girl, it was a struggle, but she would struggle with that pail back to the cabin. And she said one season she had to wait to get the water because there was a panther that was drinking at the spring. You know, today my grandparents would be arrested for child abuse, wouldn't they? But that was what life was like in those days. You know, that's really no different from the fountain of living water, which is God and the cisterns that we try to build. We build cisterns because when the rains are frequent and the streams are full and the snow is melting, we have plenty of water. But when they're not, the springs dry up, the rivers are not as affluent And so we build cisterns rather than depend upon the springs and the rain. And we do that spiritually too when we in some way say we don't try to trust God. We have to do something that enables us to not have to depend upon God. And also with a cistern you're sort of in control especially when it's piped into the house. Some way, if we can just make this convenient and we can control it, then we don't have to really trust the living fountain, the fountain of God. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the fountain of living water. I want to talk about some of the cisterns that we build in an effort to avoid having to rely upon that fountain. But first, let's think about the fountain of living water. We as humans are created to be in fellowship with God. We read the opening chapters of Genesis and we just see that idyllic picture in which there was perfect fellowship and harmony and relationship between God and man. And then the tragic story of chapter 3 where that fellowship was broken. And yet, in every race, and even though we're not always aware of it, in every human being, there is a yearning to have that fellowship with God. It's just who we are. The psalmist wrote, as the deer pants after the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O my God. More than once in recent days as I've sat praying and meditating, (laughs) this has come to me, Lord, why, why can't I have 
the relationship with you now that I will have when my spirit leaves this body. Paul said to be absent to the body with the body is to be present with the Lord. Oh God, why can't I have that now? Why is this body somehow a veil that prevents full and total fellowship with you? I don't get an answer. (laughs) But it still is the cry of my heart. I heard a program in which some men were discussing the probe we're sending to Mars. And one man said, what if we find life there? What if we find some kind of beings there? Do you think they also ask the question, is there a God who is there a God? And the person in the dialogue said, why, of course. How could anyone exist, not wonder, where did we come from? How is all this happening? There's something in all of us that yearns for that fellowship with God. One author said, it is a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. As fallen creatures, we can only know about God. Bill has preached from Romans chapter 1 recently, and we too have touched upon that. As you can look at nature and see all these evidences of God, but who is He? And we can only know about Him. Some years ago when I was involved in a psychiatric study group, I read a book written by a man named Dr. Theodore Reich. Reich was a, an associate of Freud for 30 years they were together. And Freud said he was the most gifted person of psychoanalysis that he knew. And Reich psychoanalyzed Moses. And as I read this, this book, it was astounding the biblical knowledge Theodore Reich had. He, he knew Exodus inside and out. But he did not know the God of the book. He could tell you all about him, but he did not know him. But once God redeems us and we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, from that point on, we have fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. John 1.1.3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. On and on and on we could go, but Scripture time and time again has that assurance which we know by experience that after we are redeemed, we can have fellowship with God. We, we are in contact with that ever-flowing fountain. And then here's an interesting thing. In Scripture, every time the filling of the Holy Spirit is mentioned, it is always presented to us as a fountain, not a cistern. John 3.34, for not by measure he continually gives the Spirit. The Greek metron, not 
It's not a measuring vessel that God comes and ladles out a little bit in your cistern and a little more in your cistern. But He continually gives. It is a constant flow into our lives. Ephesians 5.18, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek there says, continually be filled. And we're exhorted in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Don't quench the Spirit. We have a garden hose and it sprays, but you grab the hose and you crimp it. And the flow stops. Paul said, don't do that. Let the flow continue. Every time in the New Testament that you read about the filling of the Holy Spirit, it is always a fountain, not an internal cistern. We have a lamp. And you can put a bulb in the lamp and you can turn it on and off and on and off and nothing happens. But then you plug it into the outlet and energy comes through it and the bulb glows and you have light in the house. With a flashlight it isn't that way. You have a battery, a cistern shall we say. But With the Holy Spirit, it is not that we have a cistern or this internal battery, but this constant flow. It is a fountain, and we can trust it, but we can also quench it. And Scripture says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But there's just something in our human nature that wants to build a cistern instead of maintaining that relationship and trusting that constant flow of the Holy Spirit. Jesus cried out on the last day of the feast, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water, This he spoke of the Spirit with those who believed in him were to receive. Well, the Spirit was not yet given because he was not yet glorified, but now he has been. And what a beautiful picture that is, isn't it? That as I continually remain in contact, as Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says, before he says, don't quench the Spirit, he says, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always as I maintain this contact with God through prayer and meditation and study the Word and rejoicing in Him. Every room I enter, even when I am not aware of it, that room is impacted because the Holy Spirit is flowing out of me and touching the life of everyone with whom I have a conversation You know what I've been doing lately maybe seems strange. But when I pull up to Walmart and park and get out of the car, I pray, Lord, let me touch somebody with kindness while I'm in this store. And you know, it's just amazing. (laughs) Almost every time I go to Walmart, I have a conversation. Sometimes it's a few words, sometimes many words. I was 
looking at toothpaste a while back and I whistled unconsciously and I was whistling the blues or something. And there was this lady that came around the corner. I just had to see who's getting down over here, she said. (laughs) And we had one of those conversations in which I could express the kindness of God to her. Isn't that beautiful to think about? As long as I stay in contact with God, the Spirit's flowing in me and the Spirit's flowing out of me. And God can bless people because I've come into the room and it's not a thing about who I am. But merely that vessel through whom the fountain of living water is pouring His life and His kindness into other people. But oh, how we want to build cisterns (laughs) rather than trusting in God. You know, we do it as churches. One way churches do it, I think, is through denominationalism. Now, there's nothing wrong with churches uniting together for accountability and, and mutual support, but the problem comes when we begin to find our security in those relationships and and in in the institution. Every denomination that exists today reflects what was going on theologically in the world when it was started, what the conflict was at that time. And but so much money and so much time is spent on maintaining the denomination. And we read in our magazines about lawsuits going on because of this and that and the other in the denomination. A few years ago, there was a Tulsa church that asked me to come and present a leadership seminar, and I was expressly asked to present the New Testament plan of church government. And so I taught on Friday night, and I taught Saturday morning, And as we broke for lunch, one of the women elders, and they had women elders, said, you know, it's clear what you have been presenting to us is the Bible. We cannot deny that this is exactly what Scripture says. But we can't do it because we are a, (laughs) and she mentioned their denomination. The denomination was more important than the church as Jesus Christ built it. Isn't that sad? We want to substitute human methods. You know, it just pleases my heart that the elders decided to have a prayer advance. God has called us to this tremendous task of preparing people that he can send forth to the distant fields of harvest. But the task is too big for us. That's the way it ought to be. (laughs) And, oh God, we need more hands to the plow. Oh God, bring in more people, but every year please take out as many as you bring in. Take them out and fling them to the nations of the world. How are we going to do that? 
Well, we could go to a seminar on church growth and learn all the gimmicks. Matter of fact, this man who in, in Kentucky wrote the letter, he said, you know, I don't see anybody in the church who is really gray-headed, and so you need to stop singing these new Christian songs and sing only songs out of the hymnal. Well, personally, I like songs out of the hymnal, but you see, that's not what God's called that church to be. He brought a specific group of people, a specific demographic group together, and that's how they worship God. But we have to ignore that, you see, and do something to draw some folks in. Instead of getting on our knees before the Lord and saying, God, this is your church, not ours. Oh, Lord, those people who belong here, let them be. <laughs> but, oh, Lord, our heart cry is to impact more nations of the world, and we can't do it unless you bring the resources and the precious lives that can be flung to those nations of the world. You're the fountain, God. We refuse to build a cistern of human methods, but you're it. You, I've mentioned before, when I was young and foolish, still am foolish, when we were at Bel Air Christian Church and we were doing our best to evangelize and each week we sent out teams, calling teams, Monday night calling teams, sometimes Thursday, sometimes Tuesday night, but we just weren't seeing people come to Christ. We were knocking on a lot of doors. And there was a man named Doug Hollis, dear friend. My boys know him. They were on football, baseball teams with Hollis boys, I think. My daughter knows one of them, <laughs> more than one. But um, Doug had a company that went door-to-door -door selling encyclopedias. Matter of fact, this building used to be the big red furniture warehouse, and on television, he was the guy you used to see. And so I thought, well, you know, Doug's doing so well selling encyclopedias door-to-door. -door. I wonder if he could help us sell Jesus door-to-door. -door. <laughs> so I had Doug do a seminar for our door-to-door -door evangelists. And I said, you know, Doug, one thing that's puzzled me, you know, we have apartments starting to build, and they say, no solicitors, and how do you get by that? Oh, no problem. I always carry a clipboard with me. And if I see somebody coming toward me that looks like the manager, I start going like this. Ah, you're the, you're the manager's son? How long you been here? And he goes away and leaves me alone. And I said, well, what can we do to get people to accept? Oh, no problem. He said, what you need to do is never let the prospect make any major decision. You make the major decision. Let them make minor decisions. For instance, never ask anybody, do you accept Jesus? Ask them, do you want to be baptized Sunday morning or Sunday night? <laughs> and that was his technique. You know, I'm ashamed I ever did that. It didn't do any good. 
you know, there are all kinds of things we can do, cisterns, rather than relying on the fountain of living water. It's interesting when you look at what Israel did, the things that God was condemning them for. First of all, when they came into the promised land, God said, remember, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not make any graven images and so on and so on. But when they came into the land, they found that the Canaanites all had Baalim. And the belief was that over every piece of ground, there was a Baal or a Baal you might say, but a Baal. And so if you had a garden, there was a Baal over the garden. And so you would build a little Estarte, which was a kind of a wooden tombstone representing that Baal, and you would make sacrifices to it, that your garden would be blessed by the Baal who was over that plot of ground. It would have been sin for the Israelites to have an Estarte in give offerings to Baal. But you know that's what they did. Jehovah's God, he is Lord. But just in case he doesn't come through, we'll copper the bet <laughs> by also paying tribute to the Baal. One cistern they were building. Another one was alliances. As the nation began to exist and There was this group threatening and this group threatening. Instead of relying wholly upon Jehovah God and being faithful in worshiping Him, being faithful in in every way He wanted them to be, they began to make alliances. Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh in order to make such an alliance, for example. And here they would want to make an alliance with Egypt. And here they'd want to make an alliance with Assyria. Instead of trusting God, they sought to trust the arm of man. And time and time again, God spoke through the prophets saying, don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in strong nations. Trust me. But in the perversity of their human hearts, they tried to build this cistern and that cistern, none of which held water. And the nation fell. One interesting thing, Ahaz, first of all, he saw this nation is going to win, and then this nation is going to win. So he would change sides, and finally... He aligned with Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser and his armies had defeated Damascus, and so Ahaz went up to visit him in Damascus. And while he was there, he saw a, a beautiful altar, very artistic. It was the latest thing, very contemporary. And so he sent the design of that article, that, that altar, back to Jerusalem to Uriah the priest, and he said, build an altar exactly according to this drawing. And so Uriah built this very contemporary artistic altar. 
And when Ahaz got back, he took the altar of Jehovah. You remember, God gave precise ways to build it. Build it exactly like I said. Don't deviate one bit. But Ahaz said, oh, this new altar, it's beautiful, it's contemporary, it's artistic, it's poetic. And so he moved the altar of Jehovah and put this Damascus altar in its place. Substituting, you see, aligning with the times rather than being faithful to the fountain and doing it his way. Now it's hard to understand how such a man could have such a wonderful son. <laughs> but when Hezekiah came to the throne, he got rid of all that stuff his dad did. <laughs> got rid of that altar and put the right one back in place. He got rid of the, of the various idols that they had even put in the building. And here's another interesting thing he did. You remember when the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness? And they began encountering serpents and the snakes began biting people and they got sick and were dying and Moses cried out to God and God said, make a serpent out of brass and put it up on a pole. And any time anyone is bitten by a snake, he didn't see how protective from being bitten, but any time anyone is bitten by a snake, have them look at that brazen serpent and they'll be healed. Now you see, it wasn't the brazen serpent, but it was the God in whom they were declaring their faith as they looked at that brazen serpent. God knows we're humans, and as humans, we need visual things to assist us in our meditation, our worship, faith. The Lord's Supper is that. We come to the Lord's Supper, and we remember the cross of Christ and declare our faith in it, and the fact that we are saved by grace because of the cross. Buried in the watery grave of Christian baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. As humans, we need visual things to help us in our faith. And the brazen serpent was such as that. I have on the wall in my study, I have a crucifix. And someone would say, what on earth are you doing with a crucifix on that wall? I have it because there are times I look at that crucifix and meditate upon the sacrifice of my Lord, but I don't worship that crucifix. It has no power. It is merely a visual thing that helps me touch the depth of pain that my Lord experienced when he died for my sins. But after a while, this brazen serpent, the people began to worship it, not the God behind it. You see, it had become a cistern. <laughs> it had become something other than the relationship with that flowing fountain. And so Hezekiah got rid of the altar. 
He got rid of the idols, and he even took that brazen serpent, which God had commanded to be constructed in the wilderness, and broke it into pieces because it had become an idol, a cistern. Now, you know, religion tends to do that to us. <laughs> we can start trusting the loaf and the cup instead of the God whom we are worshiping through our participation of the loaf and the cup. I've been in churches that preach more about immersion than they do the gospel. This becomes an idol. It becomes a cistern rather than the living relationship with God. I've been invited to come to churches that are having trouble. The life of Christ just isn't there. And so, could you come and help us form a New Testament form of church government? As if that'll solve things. It doesn't solve anything. That's an outward structure. It can become a cistern. Unless the life of Jesus Christ is alive in the church, no structure will make a bit of difference. The fountain must be flowing for there to be life. In our private lives, of course, we are very prolific cistern builders. We'll not take time to talk about those, but let us recall the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Literally, give us today's bread today. <laughs> Trusting the fountain of living water, not so much what we can store up. Our Lord said, seek first the kingdom of heaven these things shall be added to you. Barb and I learned that early in our marriage. When Jimmy was born, an interesting thing, Barb was in the hospital. It was Sunday. I was supposed to go get Jimmy and Barb out of the hospital on Monday. Jimmy didn't know about this. He was a newborn baby. But uh, Sunday morning, the collection plate went by, and I had my tithe to put in, and I thought, you know, I have to get my wife and baby out of hock tomorrow. If I put this in the collection plate, I may not have enough money. <laughs> Visited Barbara in the hospital, saw the baby Sunday afternoon, then went to the evening service feeling so guilty. <laughs> and Sunday night, I put in the tithe. Monday morning, I worked, put in the day's work on the railroad and rushed to the hospital. But before I did, I went home, I cleaned up had $30 in my pocket, and as I started to leave, I noticed a nickel on the dresser. Don't know where it came from. I stuck it in my pocket. When I got to the hospital, I owed the hospital $30.05. <laughs> to this day, I wondered if I had not trusted God, if I had not put in the tithe Sunday night, not legalistically, but just trusting God. Would that nickel have been there? <laughs> Wouldn't have been something, couldn't get your wife and baby out because of five cents? but the Lord provided. When we were in school, it's just amazing. Sometimes we often had $2 a week to eat on, and we would strain Campbell's soup, and Barbara and I would have the broth and, and give Jimmy the solids. Time and again, just amazing things happened when we just couldn't go on anymore. One time we were totally, totally out of anything to 
clean with. We were out of toothpaste. We didn't have bath soap. We didn't have anything to wash dishes. We didn't have anything to do laundry. And I was leaving at 6.30 in the morning to go to school, and we prayed, oh, God, we don't know what to do, but it's in your hands. We lived in a third floor flat in Cincinnati, and on this day, there was not a single person in the building but Barbara. And the doorbell rang, and she went down three flights and answered the front door, and the man said, I'm from Procter & Gamble. And he said, we're starting to introduce some new projects to the market, some new products. Would you be willing to be a six-month test family if we gave you six-month supply of what now is Gleam toothpaste, six-month supply of what did become Dove soap, six-month supply of, you know, laundry detergent and dish detergent, and naturally you know what Barbara answered. (laughs) God met our need. More than once we came home from preaching out in the country and found at our front door a bag of groceries. To this day, I have no idea where it came from. Trusting the fountain of living water. Sometimes poverty is a blessing (laughs) because that's the way we live. Well, I could go on and on today, couldn't I? But I better quit. But let me say, brother and sister, let's not give in to our human tendency to build a cistern. But with all of our hearts, live with dependency upon the consistency of that fountain that is always going to flow may not always be delicious water from the Ozarks. It may be a stream from Colorado. (laughs) But let's learn to live that way. Let's keep living that way as a church and as individuals. Not forsaking the fountain of living water and hewing for ourselves cisterns which cannot hold water. Praise be to God for his faithfulness. In Jesus' name.